Hi, and welcome to episode 22 of Cavalier Cast The Civil War in Words, a podcast that looks at anything and everything to do with the wars of the three kingdoms. After today's episode, I'll be taking a short break before returning towards the end of May with a series of Scottish themed topics. After all, this is a war that burned in three kingdoms Ireland, Scotland, and England. In previous episodes, we've heard how this underrated period of history is being kept alive in books, films, and archaeology, as well as battle reenactments and historical groups such as the John Hamden Society. Another aspect to this is wargaming. Scott Moore, designer of the board game This War Without an Enemy, joins me to discuss why he created this game and how his interest in the Civil Wars began at a young age, along with that of a well-known friend of his. Afterwards, I'll chat with Warwick about tabletop wargaming, along with the usual Civil War threads that go without saying. So whether you're a veteran wargamer like Warwick, or like me, a newbie, listen on to find out more about this very popular pursuit. Thanks to John Rich, Paul O'Brien, Andy Four, Michael Harker and Mike Chetham for sending me images of their miniature figures to illustrate the episode. So I'm really pleased to welcome Scott Moore to the podcast, uh, designer of the war game board game, This War Without an Enemy. So Scott, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for inviting me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Okay, so do you want to start by telling us, when did your interest in the Civil War start? Well, it was um, when I was age 11, so four decades ago, as I'm 50 now. Um, I just started secondary school, and in my class was uh, a boy called Andrew Hopper. And even at that early age, he already was a fanatic about the English Civil War and the, the 17th century in general. So his interest rubbed off on me. And uh, eventually, we were a group of four school friends um, with an interest in the period. We used to, during break times or lunchtime, uh, sometimes rather than playing football outside, we used to um, play a game of who could name the most English Civil War commanders. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, it was usually Andrew who won. <laughs> I got the interest in the Civil War around the age of 10 as well. And, and that was when I first discovered mm. portrait of Charles I on uh, a pack of cards in Helmsley Castle gift shop. And from wow. that moment, you know, like like you and Andrew and your group, the only difference for me is that I couldn't persuade, for love or money, any of my friends to get involved in <laughs> any sort of reenactment or, or interest. <laughs> Yeah, I think I was very lucky. And um, a little bit later, maybe when we were around 13, 14, uh, we invested in some miniature figures and started wargaming. So um, I had an army of uh, Rupert's Bluecoats, for example, uh, because Andrew was always a parliamentarian. So I had to, uh, had to choose the Royalists, which I was happy enough with because Rupert was uh, uh, a character I was... Uh, quite interested in at that time. If any listeners aren't certain, um, Andrew Hopper, Professor Andrew Hopper, uh, has written a biography of Thomas Fairfax. That's right, yes. And is also involved in uh, Civil War petitions, uh, the project, amongst other things. Um, so so you, you both did reenactment, is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, 
we were 16 um in fact we were he was born a day after me so he's uh, just a day younger uh we're both 16 and with a couple of other friends um we joined the english civil war society uh it was colonel fox's regiment which was based in the west midlands uh we were uh, based in solihull uh, just southeast of birmingham and um, for the next couple of years, I took part in a lot of uh, musters and uh, later on some living histories. Uh, it was, yeah, it was a great experience for a sort of 16, 17 year old. Yeah, really bringing that interest to life, isn't it? Sort of living and breathing it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's, there's nothing quite like it, really, I think, apart from perhaps acting. But, um, you know, I've never had any acting skills, but uh, in that sort of environment, you're among hundreds of other like-minded people. And, um, you know, it's, you're, as well as sort of living the history, you're obviously providing a spectacle for the the general public as well. But I, I mean, I'm not sure about yourself, but I, I found that once you were in amongst it and, and the battle was underway, uh, it just sort of took its own course. You know, you you really just forgot about people watching you know you're right in that moment uh with people coming at you with pikes yeah. albeit with rubber tips you know but even yeah. so yeah. some yeah there's a lot of i remember before the battles there's a lot of uh, anticipation um you know you wait a while for the yeah things to start and then you sort of march forward and suddenly you're on the battlefield with you know thousands of people that suddenly back in the 1980s the some of the battles had five to 10,000 participants. Yeah. Uh, is the smoke, the sound of the cannons and the muskets, um, the horses. So, yeah, you really, yeah, once you're into the battle, it's so you're with a group of comrades um, fighting against the enemy, and it's physically pretty challenging as well. Uh, I was a pikeman, and I'm quite small, so just, you know, managing the pike was always a bit of a struggle for me. Yeah, Snub, I was a pikeman as well in Newcastle's White Court, sealed knot. You're right that the exertion and the physical exertion of carrying that rallying, you know, racing around and then sometimes just being trapped, you know, in this scrum and just, you know, at the mercy of wherever it goes. Yeah. Hoping that you don't get trodden on, <laughs> but fantastically enjoyable. <laughs> yes, it reminded me a little bit of rugby at school. but uh... Yeah, yeah, that's true. Now, so dare, dare I ask, so, you know, wargaming with, with Andrew, who was the better general? <laughs> well <laughs> yeah i think uh i think it's reasonably evenly matched but uh, right. probably if anyone had the edge it was probably andrew yeah he was just a little bit more dedicated to the uh yeah to the whole experience and... right so have i got this right then so the 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 options for, for gaming you've got board gaming war gaming or role play yeah and for non-war gamers that might be listening, so what what's the the main difference between those three? Well, in terms of games about war, so um, you know, role-playing games are like Dungeons and Dragons, for example. So they are collaborative storytelling efforts. And back in the sort of nineteen seventies and eighties, they were very fantasy focused. But these days, there are a lot of historical games as well. So that's really, um, it's, you know, there's no competitive element. It's about um, there's a, a referee or storyteller who manages um, the narrative. And then the other people are, uh, each of them takes a character, a historical character. It could be a famous person or 
or just a character they've invented and they have a maybe a challenge historical based on historical events the oldest form of sort of more competitive gaming is with miniature figures um so miniatures wargaming was invented by hd wells the sci-fi author uh, he published a book called the little wars back in 1913 for playing with toy soldiers and um, by the middle of the 20th century, this had become an established hobby. Um, it's still very popular now. So with miniatures wargaming, normally it's uh, metal, sometimes plastic figures. Um, the most famous these days is Warhammer, which is fantasy, but a lot of people still play historical games. And it's generally recreating a skirmish or a battle. So each, each metal yeah. or plastic figure could be an individual or could represent a unit. So if you have a battle, uh, historically, it might be a battle with, say, 10,000 men on the side, but you'd have one man equal to a regiment. So you might have, sorry, one figure would represent, say, a regiment. So you might have 100 or 200 or 300 figures. Uh, and that um, hobby is not just about the gaming. It's also about painting the figures, creating the scenery. Uh, so it's, it's a very uh, sort of creative endeavor. Um, that's something that, as I said, I used to um, do as a, as a teenager. Uh, these days, my preferred form is board war gaming. So board games, um, everyone knows Monopoly or Scrabble, for example. But these days, there are literally thousands of new games published every year. War games are uh, obviously historically based, usually with military topics. They can cover anything from a, a skirmish or a battle through to the to a whole war. Um, for example, you know the whole of the Second World War could be played um, via a board game. And the board games they always have a, a map, uh, either a paper map or a cardboard board representing the terrain or the uh, the countries or the continent where the the conflict is taking place. Um, they usually have paper counters representing the uh, soldiers or units. Um, some can have plastic figures, some can have wooden blocks. Okay. Uh, most games have dice as well to represent that random factor, the element of chance. Um, some can have cards. Great, thanks. Thanks for explaining and covering off the different um, aspects. Uh, and I mean, you know, even going back to Charles First's day, you know, he had uh, miniature figures to try and help him learn um, military uh, tactics. And and when did you create War Without an Enemy? Well, I'd tried to design um, a game about the English Civil War um, quite a long time ago, but uh, then a very influential game called unhappy king charles was published that was back in 2008 and for me that sort of uh, achieved what i was trying to do by um, simulating the whole of the english civil war in a game which can be played in a in a few hours so i sort of stopped my efforts at that point but a few years later uh, a board game company called columbia games based in the u.s um, of which I was a fan. Uh, they're very well known for their block war games. That's games using uh, wooden blocks to represent the units. Uh, they wrote on a, on a blog that they were considering new ideas for games, and one of the ideas was the English Civil War. So I contacted um, uh, one of the company who I knew anyway, 
and asked if uh, they'd like me to design a game about the English Civil War, and they said yes, back in 2010. Okay, right. And how long did that take? Yeah, it was quite a complicated process. So I fairly quickly designed a prototype, uh, collaborating with the, the lead designer from that company. But um, I waited quite a few years for them to uh, decide to publish the game, and um, eventually I got... Um, got the impression that my game wasn't really a priority for them. So I looked for another publisher and a friend of mine, a French friend recommended a company called Nuts Publishing based in Brittany in France. Um, and I submitted my game to a few different publishers, but that was the one which uh, accepted it very gladly. Um, okay. The owner of the company actually is a designer himself has designed a lot of games uh, based on um, 17th century conflicts one side once uh, he'd agreed to publish it the process was about still took about four years from to uh, to get a board game published yeah, thanks so and, and war without an enemy so you can have quick games or full games can't you with a lot of board war games they're quite lengthy and quite complex so it's always good to design some shorter uh, variations variants of the game so in this war without an enemy you can play the whole war starting in um, the end of 1642 and going through to i chose 1646 as they as a sort of cut off date um but you can play an individual year so you can play um, 1644, for example, or you can start at the end of 1642 and play until the end of 1643. So those shorter games might be six to eight turns, whereas the the full war, if you play that, it's going to be um, close to 30 turns. And how do you actually win a game? I, as a designer, I thought quite a quite long and hard about how to uh, how to determine victory. Um, so in Unhappy King Charles, that was a game which inspired me a lot. Um, it's a more complex game. I wanted a sort of simpler uh, way to, to judge who's winning the game. So I decided uh, simply it would be based on control of certain cities. So in the game, there are a number of uh, what are called victory point cities. So London's the most important. That's worth a couple of points. All the others are worth a single point. Uh, so there's yeah. Oxford, Castle, York, etc. The The... Victory points is a relative scale. So if um, if one player captures a city from another player, uh, the victory point marker moves one uh, one point towards their side. If it's uh, if the other player captures, it moves back again. So the scale goes obviously from zero um, in the middle uh, up to um, if one player gains gains three points, uh, then they win the game. Yeah, so in the um, the start of the uh, the main game, uh, the parliamentarian player actually starts with a point, so they've got to get two points to win, uh, which might be capturing uh, you know a couple of cities uh, from the royalists. Uh, the royalist player has a little bit more to do; they've got to get four points in order to to win the game. And and is part of the victory terms you, you can capture the king? Is that right? Yes, that's another. Um, uh, another way that the, the parliamentarians can gain points. So uh, if the king is captured, the parliamentarian player gains a couple of points. Well, in the game, the uh, the wooden blocks represent um, you know relatively large bodies of men, a few thousand. But some of the blocks also represent commanders. So there's a block for the king. 
And if that block is reduced to zero strength, then uh, then king is captured. Right. So uh, so that could happen in a battle, or could could he be taken in a town or, or not? Uh, potentially, yes. So if he's besieged within a town, then could also be taken. Um, it does happen quite often in games. So although the Royce player has to be very very aware of the fact that the king could be captured, so <laughs> Rupert take naught. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> and and how does um, a separate deck um, per player change the dynamics of the game compared to others? Um, a lot of board war games have a deck of cards which drives the game. So um, uh, basically, the beginning of each year in this war without an enemy, each player will take six cards from their their deck and. On each turn, they play one of those cards. Um, those cards will give you a number of points you can use to move your uh, blocks, your units, or you can add strength or recruit new blocks. Having separate decks, um, I could introduce events which are specific to each side. So a couple of examples, um, the parliamentary, parliamentarian player in the game has a card with an event uh, called Rupert Dismissed by the King. So if that card is played, then Rupert who is a, is a commander, is a leader block in the game, uh, is sort of demoted to a, a generic cavalry block. Well, the, the Royalist player has a, an event card called Delayed Organization of the New Model Army. So this postpones the uh, uh, the creation of the New Model Army um, for the parliamentarian player. And I also introduced some, uh, some hypothetical events, things which could have take, taken place, which, but which didn't historically. Okay. So one of them is um, the plot by the the Hothams to hand over Hull to the king. Really interesting, isn't it? When you when you you look at those aspects, so things that didn't happen but could have done. And that's that's one of the the joys of playing war games. You can, you know, try and pursue uh, the same strategy which the commanders did during the war. Um, you know, see if it has a different outcome, or you can pursue a very different strategy and see if that would you know, would have been more effective. Now, it's not all bad news for the royalists, is it? I mean, there, there is a Henrietta piece that comes from the content of yes. supplies. Yeah. Excellent. Yes. I mean, I thought it was, it's always good to include uh, include female characters in war games. The player, the royalist player can choose where uh, where she lands. She could try and land historically in, in Yorkshire, as she did in Bridlington, or you could choose a different location. And uh, when her block meets up with the king, then those supplies are delivered and the, the royalist player gets some sort of reinforcements and uh, i mean i mean i was talking to somebody lately um and they they said that a particular game that they play has a sir john Uri piece or a digby piece you know i thought that was fantastic just to have this uh serial defector yeah <laughs> trying to upset things yeah um i mean i i do unhappy king charles uh had I believe I had turncoats, and that's something which I had to include in my game as well. So there is a uh, each player has a turncoats card in their deck, which um, means that you know during battles, um, you know at the end of the battle, one of the blocks could could defect to the other side. Do you think a game could be designed to include clubmen or levelers? I mean, my game does actually have clubmen, so there are. Each side has again has a card uh, with a clubman event, which allows them to place a, a clubman block um, in an area. And that block uh, it can't move, so it sort of represents you know the local inhabitants, and it's not very strong militarily. 
but it has to be dealt with. So, and, and so we're talking about the civil war in general. Who, who's your favourite commander? Uh, I mean, no surprise given you know who my best friend was at school. It's uh, Sir Thomas Fairfax. I'm pretty sure you know even at age twelve or thirteen, Andrew Hopper's favourite historical character was Sir Thomas Fairfax. Um, <laughs> there were other commanders in the war. Um, I read books on, so I read a biography of Prince Rupert, um, who's, you know, perhaps my favourite royalist commander. Uh, I was also very partial to to Hopton and Waller with their sort of, you know, personal yeah. friends from the Thirty Years' War who fought on opposite sides uh, in the southwest. Um, but, yeah, I think Fairfax is, you know, uh, as a Yorkshireman myself as well, I think Fairfax is the, yeah, obvious choice. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I see. And um, and when you play games, do you tend to follow the methods of a particular commander? Uh, it depends what sort of games I play. So um, I think games which simulate battles are ones in which you can sort of, uh, you know, try to follow what the commander, you know, did during that particular battle or what they might have done. Uh, I don't play so many of those games. I play um, more strategic games uh, covering whole wars. So, uh, you know, with games on the English Civil War, for example, effectively as a player, you're representing various commanders. Uh, is there a Civil War battle you've never recreated um, that you would love to try? There is actually a board game I have called This uh, uh, Curse Civil War, which is published probably about 15 years ago, which has five battles Um and I think I've only ever played a couple of those. So, um, you know, that's a game I own and I would like to play. Master Moore is one, you know, mm. as the largest battle from the war. And in fact, the largest ever fought in English saw. I think that's, you know, uh, and also it's a very close run battle. It could have gone either way. So, you know, I think that would be a, a great one to fight. Um, uh, and if one day I ever do more miniatures wargaming, then I think you know Master Moore will be the one I'd want to uh, to recreate. Do you find that the the game and battles, the outcomes tend to follow the same outcome? I've actually, you know, in this war without an enemy, I'm surprised by how varied the outcomes are. So, you know, in any board war game, there are two factors: the players themselves and their decisions, but also there's always random elements in the game. So in this war without an enemy, the random elements are in battles, there's a lot of dice rolling. So even if one side has inferior forces, they could still win a battle. There's right. also the component elements, which so there can be uh, unexpected events. So I've you know seen games where the king has been captured, you know, in 1642, for example. Oh, wow, right. <laughs> Yeah, if that happens, it's then very difficult for the Royalist players to, to win. Not impossible, but very difficult. Um, I've seen, you know, games where the Royalist player has won in 1643. Yeah, uh, other games which carry on until until the end of 1646. Um, so, you know, I think that's what makes the games fun is that you know you don't really know what the outcome can be, and sometimes you know you can be surprised by what happens in a game. And I think you've you've said that the the game itself um, is an educational tool, isn't it, for promoting literacy and spatial awareness and numeracy? Yes, I mean because you're simulating history, you know, can, in an interactive way, it can teach you sometimes a little bit more effectively than uh, you know just uh, reading a, a book, for example. Uh, you know, I can't really recreate 
all aspects of the war in, in a simple game. But uh, on yeah. the military, you know, I wanted to make clear that it wasn't really about the battles. The battles took place often because one side was besieging a town and, you know, the other side came to, re- to relieve it. Master Moore is a good example. You know, it was all about relieving the siege of York. You know, the, the aim of the, the commanders was to control the towns rather than necessary to, you know, to battle the enemy. And has Andrew played the game with you? He did play a, a very early version several years ago, uh, provided some uh, some advice on that. Unfortunately, these days he's, he's very busy, so uh, we haven't played the, the published game yet with him, but I hope to do so yet one day. And when you played, were you the Royalists again? Or... <laughs> I imagine I was, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's been really interesting, Scott. Thank you very much for, for coming on and talking to us about War Without an Enemy. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a pleasure, Mark. If you want to find out more about this War Without an Enemy, Scott has recorded a teach and play video on the Homo Ludens YouTube channel. So we've talked board games, but what about miniatures and tabletop war games? Well, I'm going to speak to Warwick Luth, qualified conflict and battlefield archaeologist and war gamer. Hello again, Warwick. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to talk about something that, that's very uh, close to your heart as well, and that's wargaming. Um, and th- this will be very good, I think, for, for listeners because so I haven't tabletop wargamed, haven't role play war game wargamed, but I have board game wargamed <laughs> uh, <laughs> and computer games as well. So all the uh, same stable, Mark. It's all the same yeah, stable. Yeah, yeah. So have you done all three? Have you uh, board, role play, and tabletop? I've done all three, yeah, absolutely. Um, right. Call it obsession, call it, call it being a bit geeky, you know, but it, it, it is good fun. Um, you, 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 you and I and, and people, you know, who are, you know, steeped in 17th century history, is another way of, of exploring that, okay, um, outside, you know, what we usually do, which is having to read a book or go to a reenactment. Um, it's, it's another avenue of exploring that. So, yeah. Do you have a preference for any of those? Um, prob- I mean, probably, probably a tabletop war gamer um, with, with big old men, model soldiers. Um, um, you know, that's that's probably where my first sub lines. But, I've, you know, I've, 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 I've done computer gaming with it. Uh, uh-huh. I've done board gaming with it as well. And it's all good fun, you know. So, uh, so yeah. But no, uh, tabletop gaming with with model soldiers is is where where my heart lies, definitely. Many many moons ago, um, as a teenager, I mocked up this uh, map of the United Kingdom, um, and sort of stuck the different armies on. And yeah, kind of did the dice rolls? You know, how far can they move? You know, and that sort of thing. Me and my friend tried to sort of have a, a game that way, and it, yeah, that, yeah, that was that was good. I mean, it was quite good. I mean, it's, it's just a basic Kriegspiel. Um, I mean, Kriegspiel, you know, for those of you that don't know, um, was um, Prussian army came up with it in the eighteen seventies, and it's a way of training officers, and it's pretty much exactly the same. You've got a you know, one thirty thousand map, you've got blocks on it, uh, and you do rolls for you know how. Well, a unit can move, you know, what, how much food it's got, how much ammunition it's got, how tired it is, what the weather's like. It's exactly the same, really, Mark. Um, so, yeah, yeah, 
you're a war gamer, you know, as much as you don't <laughs> want to admit it. So, yeah, I, I, I'm in there, that's it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> one, of the, one of the afflicted. So. <laughs> yeah, I just haven't painted any yet. I've just cut out little exactly, figures. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'll tell you what I do have from about 1997 is some uh, lead figures. Uh, so, the, the, I mean, lead, lead is, is still the preferred thing because, you know, there's a crispness about the moulds. Um, Obviously, as as moulds get older, you get mould lines on them, and they're, and they're not as nice sculpts. Largely, you know, recently, um, last 10, 11 years or so, there has been a, a move over to um, plastic figures. Um, the problem is that plastic figures, um, because they're injected moulded, um, it's a lot less sharp um, details on the figures as well. It's also a case um, they're very, very light as well. So you, yeah. you, know, you, you know, try and roll a set of dice across a battlefield and about five pipe points go across it and, you know, you scatter them to the four winds. Um, there is a small following that's now moving over to resin. Resin is, is even better than metal. The problem is that it's so delicate, um, mm. it's, it's almost like, you know, doing military modeling, which is with big scale models, you know, um, you know, the absolute you know nth degree um so that is emerging as well but but mainly now you know there's a big big move towards kind of plastic model soldiers what's the biggest tabletop then that you've done you know with with all these figures laid out um it must be i've done tabletop games of must be about 15 feet by about six feet across and that's for the big big battles so your 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 new your new breach your edge hills your your masks and walls Right. Um, and I mean, the biggest war game, war game I've ever, ever seen, um, and it wasn't for an uh, English Civil War one, but it was for a Napoleonic one. They did um, the Battle of Waterloo at the University of Glasgow for the Waterloo Uncovered Archaeology Project about, must have been about four years ago. Um, and there was about 22,000 figures on a wow. 75 foot by 40 foot table um obviously you can't move across that so it's split into different areas but they've they've put down on the on the table um they've taken a, a period map and blown it up to about you know, five six hundred percent um and then put figures and everything on top of that as well um so you know that is the, the holy grail of, of you know what you can achieve with wargaming and at the same thing you know it's 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 not for everyone not everyone obviously can achieve that so you know it's really again you know how much time how much effort you're willing to put into it um there's enough actions in the civil war what's lovely about the civil war is, is that you've got big battles and you've got small battles you've got skirmishes you've got sieges as well um so if you've you know not got enough uh, very much time not enough outlay you, you've got you know maybe one weekend a week um you want to put some figures on the table you can refight, you know, an English Civil War siege as much as you can, you know, a battle that's got a couple of thousand figures on the table as well. Wow. And so 22,000 uh, figures. So with something that scale, you could potentially have sort of one side having sort of three, four people sort of controlling that, that entire army, couldn't you? You could. I mean, for that one, uh, I think it was about 120 players, purely because the more figures you have on the table, the, the rules that you're using, they, they will slow down, obviously, because there's more yeah. things you're having to do. But certainly, you know, 22,000 figures on the table, um, you know, 
there is only so many figures, you know, that one person can paint as much as we would all like to have, you know, a big, big, big army, you know, a couple of thousand figures and with everything in it. And do you get a lot of spectators, you know, people that are just engrossed, willing to sort of watch as, as it, the game progresses? Absolutely. I mean, you go to a war game show um, and, you know, if you put on a really, you know, good battle, you know, big spectacle, with lots of, you know, as well as the soldiers on the army, you also have, you know, little dioramas and vignettes, you know, of, you know, someone, you know, herding their sheep in the middle of a battlefield, you know, <laughs> someone losing the bodies. You will have people standing around, you know, pointing things out to them. I, I once did uh, for the Scottish Battlefields Trust a um, um, a war game of battle dressing pans on a big table, um, and it was it was a tiny battle. It, it was very very simple rules, so you could get you know people taking part in the battle, and it would last five minutes, and then you get the next shot in. And you know this was this was in the middle of a reenactment field with a big marquee over it, and it was six deep um, at one end of the table. So yes. You will get lots, lots of people spectating. So, so um, there's no kit inspection of the men before. It's you back. will do. I mean, you'll go to some shows and they'll go, well, that unit over there, okay, has the wrong buttons. Um, they had them 20 years after that, but not that point. Um, wow. And okay, you know, you want to be as historically accurate as possible, but at the same time, you know, it's a bit of fun. You know, no one's really, yeah. you know, going to call you out, you know, until he's going to repaint them again. So I've got no time for button <laughs> counters. As long as it looks, you know, vaguely as it should do, you know, rather than being you know, totally 100% accurate, you'll be absolutely fine. Here's another thing I remember. Um, and I don't know if you, you watched this, but uh, Game of War was a TV show. I think Angela Rippon started. Yeah. I was fascinated by this. So 1997, uh, Angela Rippon's doing these news flashes about the Civil War as to what's happening now. Yeah. Um, you've got real life general or well retired generals at the time, uh, and Professor Richard Holmes. Professor Richard Holmes, yes, I, I, I met him once in in because he used to live actually in Aldersford, just up the road from Cheriton. Um, what was really interesting um, at the time that Game of War came out, I lived about five minutes away from Sandhurst, um, and so Paddy Griffith, who was the other um, Sandhurst person in it, lived up the top of my road as well. Matthew Bennett, okay, who was in it. It's up the top of my road as well. So yeah, um, Game of War was fantastic. Um, I, I, I looked up the other day. They put about two or three of them onto YouTube, so you can go back and, and, and watch them as well. You know, going back to the Sandhurst theme, um, Sandhurst in terms of you know Civil War wargaming um, is quite unique um, because one of the, the big uh, movers and shakers, obviously within the revival and Civil War studies. Brigadier Peter Young, who obviously started the Seal Knot, um, was also a, an enormous war gamer as well. Um, lots of his, his, his armies are still out there as well. Um, so yes, um, Sandhurst has a big, big part to play in, in why British war, world war gaming, you know, is, is such a big yeah. thing today. Um, there is another series that was done uh, in the late seventies. I think it was for. Time T's TV. It was called Battleground. It was presented by Andy Callan, who who used to do um, Callan, who was you know the British uh, the um, uh, the other version of James Bond, and, and and he used to you know be in these weekly programs. He always used to you know end up in a war game, okay, with 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 uh, Russian spies and that kind of thing, as you do. Um, but that was done. I think the game of war one was just done with uh, coloured blocks on the table. Um, but the, the battleground was done with, with 
miniatures on table as well. And the very first one I did was was Edge Hill as well. Oh, um, wow. It's really, really impressive. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but the problem is, of course, um, you know, that there is always this image. Um, I don't know whether it comes from the Dungeons and Dragons crowd as well. You know, the wargaming, uh, you know, it's a, it's a bit of an anarchy uh, thing, you know. Um, it's, it's, you know, antisocial <laughs> teenagers in their bedrooms, you know, painting their miniatures. It's, it's always had a bit of an of an, of a, of an image problem, and I think that's probably why it's, there haven't been more programs about it on, on TV. But yeah, yeah, no, I do remember Game of War very well. Yeah, yeah they reproduced near speed, didn't they? And yeah. In the end, it was the same result that played out. Uh, mm. You know, royalist defeat, but despite the disadvantage in numbers, put up a good fight. Um, Rupert smashed the parliamentarian left wing. Parliamentarians smashed the royalist left wing, and it was that sort of circular action. The thing that I liked about um, Game of War was just how they had that central command point who who processed the orders, and then they let each side know what they could see in the fog of war. They revealed it gradually. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, the problem with, with, with war gaming, it depends on how you do it as well, because obviously if you are playing the commander who is in command of everything on the table as well, the problem is, is that you've got a god's eye view of it. You can see absolutely everything that's going on, and so you're going to play it as a game rather than as a general on the field who you know, stand on yeah. the battlefield. You can't see everything. Um, but have you ever played this war without an enemy or unhappy King Charles? I haven't. I, I tried to look for a copy the other day of it um, because I have been tempted about it a couple of a couple of times, but I don't know whether it's just over here. I, couldn't find it anywhere in print. I'd, I'd, I'd have to send over to America for it. Um, yeah, but it does look good. It does look good. Um, yeah. Anyone out there, you know, he's got he's got a, a copy that's willing to send it on. Please, please do get in contact <laughs> with me. <laughs> Anyone that you know that's in charge of a board war games company, okay, that that's willing to you know get distribution rights for Europe and England, okay, please do so, okay, because we, <laughs> we want it over here as well. <laughs> we could review it. <laughs> we could, uh, could okay. Go out of a way to do so. Is there any battle you would like to war game that you haven't? So I, 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 I don't think I've done Mars and Moor. Um, and Mars and Moor obviously is, is the big one. It's where everyone's at. I'd like to do that. I think when you're doing a, 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 a tabletop war game, you want a battle. Okay, that's that's going to have you know, something unexpected that you can throw into it. That you know that you, that's going to pull that out, you know, from, from the middle of everything. So, you know, I'd yeah. like to do something like lands, uh, no, roundway rather, um, where, you know, you, you can have, you know, a hill um, and, you know, halfway up the hill you roll and you go, oh, no, there's a there's a ravine <laughs> that's opened up right in front of you. You know, I think that'd be fantastic. Personally, um, I'd like to do some siege war gaming, actually, because there's not enough of them out there. Um, I've got all the stuff up in my my pile of shame up in the attic, you know, of unpainted <laughs> war game things. So I'll I'll get around to it eventually. But no, some really, really good, really good siege war gaming, you know, with lots of lots of earthworks and uh oh wow and, yeah uh, sconces and everything would be fantastic, I think. Yeah. Or, or sort of like a Donington Castle or something. Yeah, Someone does a model of it out there. Um they also do a, a model of, of Shaw House that I'm, I'm I'm really tempted by. So yeah. I mean that's yeah. something else, isn't it, when you've got you know like a like that landscape there, so so it's not just like the battlefield. You've got you've got a castle and you've got a house yeah. and the earthworks. I mean, fantastic. 
So it's mm. something else it really is. It's, it's um, I mean, you've got the wargaming side of it, but as well as that, you've got the modeling side of it. It's very much like model, uh, like model railway modeling as well. And that you, you get some people who just, you know, put a green map down on the table and go, that's what we're going to fight over. There are other people, okay, who make you know, absolute artworks out of, out of what's on the table. And it's, it's what is being represented that is just as important as the model soldiers on it as well. It is, it is quite, quite amazing, you know, some of the innovations, you know, that war games can, can come up with. They're even going down to the, the limits of, of modeling what's inside the houses now, you know, rather than the outside of them as well. So it's quite, quite something amazing, I think. Any, any little mock-up uh, artilleries, you know, cannons that you can fire off? Or? So not anymore. I mean, the, the, the person who created hobby wargaming was actually H.G. Wells. And H.G. Wells, in his book Little Wars, um, what he used to do is, is Britons who, who make the big bottle soldiers back in the 1920s created um, a gardener fill gun. Uh, and, and what he did is he put a, you know, liquid fulminate down the barrel, stick matchsticks down the bottle there, oh. lift it off again, it fired you know, matchsticks at these soldiers. It's fantastic. I think the funny enough, okay, um they've stopped doing those now. Um yeah. you know, but but the you know uh, the health and safety police uh, have said no, <laughs> no, can't do that anymore. It'd be fun though. Would be fun. They they end up making you wear goggles when you war game and one these matches Blind your eyes or anything. <laughs> can't even play conkers, never mind. Uh, you can't, no. <laughs> firing out of artillery pieces, I suppose. <laughs> it's usually the case. I'll have a, a brand new artillery piece on the table and they go, right, you know, roll to fire it and you roll a double, double one or something and it goes, oh, it's blown up. Well, great then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what about tactics? Do, do you follow any particular commander's tactics? normally i used to try to do this i used to try to do this and found that if you try and follow it uh, follow tactics you know 17th century tactics as they were used you have a tendency to lose very very quickly um <laughs> lots, lots of people tend to use kind of modern tactics you know on the, in a 17th century setting i would love to do a, a war game where both sides said right we will follow you know what they would have done you know ad finitum um but for the most part lots of people tend you know to line them up like Napoleonic soldiers and just blast away at each other and, and, and that's how they do it but right. you can't blame them I, I think that's covered quite a nice variety hasn't it of war gaming so yeah, it just kind of opens up that it you know it's, it, it is much more than, than just one aspect yeah you know lots of people kind of you know push it off and go it but there's nerdy and, and geeky you never know okay until you try it you know it is yeah. good fun you get out of it what you put into it um, mm. you know Give it a try. It's it's something different. Well, I think we should end on that. Give it a yeah. try. It's something different. The old adage is, you know, war gamers they could be doing something worse. They could be chasing after hairdressers and, and you know, drinking <laughs> their life away. We're <laughs> yeah. not okay. Okay, it might be a, a bit a bit different and a bit strange, you know, but it's it's fairly harmless. It's got something for everyone. So yeah. yeah. Here's again, it keeps history alive. You know, so reenactments one thing, books are another thing films and tv wargaming is another segment of that you know just yeah. as as equal and i'll tell you okay it it's lovely and relaxing in an evening you can have the most stressful evening going okay sit down at your painting desk you know put some nice music on and just paint for half an hour to an hour it's relaxing as well you know and and 
we're, yeah. we're constantly saying, you know, you know, in this day, day and age, that as well as physical health, you know, mental health is is important as well. You know, it sounds yeah. cliche, you know, but you know, it is relaxing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. Well, thank thank you, Warwick, again. Absolute pleasure. Fascinating. I hope you've enjoyed listening. And as ever, please show your support by rating Cavalier Cast on your podcast platform.